everyone to part one of our webinar seminar series, the 99 percenters, what real net worth clients need. But let's get started. Um, I'm a partner in the family and matrimonial department at Vimans. I'm joined this evening by my colleague, Maeve Lucy, who is a solicitor in the team. And we are also joined this evening by Nastasia Hilton, who is a barrister at uh, One Garden Court Chambers. She is a specialist in uh, children and financial matters. Nastasia is fantastic. And just to back me up on that, um, this is a comment that I found that had been published about her by one of the legal directories. Nastasia is wonderful with clients and able to get on top of the papers and the issues in a case quickly. She's exceptionally bright. And this shines through in the way she handles matters. I think that's all very, very true. Um, and finally, but by no means least, we have the absolute honour of co-hosting um, and collaborating on this series of seminar and webinars with Joe O'Sullivan. Joe really doesn't need any introduction from me, but I'm going to give her one anyway. Um, she, Joe is, as you'll no, no doubt be aware, um, amongst many other important things, the founder of O'Sullivan Law. She is the pioneer of the solicitor neutral process and the author of Almost any, Anything But Family Court. This is a, um, Joe's showing her book there in the, in the screen for you all. Um, this is a fantastic book um, and it was endorsed by Sir Andrew McFarlane, who said that the book is oozing with common sense and emotional insights um, and it commends Joe for explaining options and roots in non-legal language, which I think is uh, really, really very topical at the moment. We'll be hearing from Joe in a little while. Um, hopefully she'll be talking about what things we can do to help our clients, um, help our own practices and what are really very challenging circumstances, um, a changing market and a deepening economic crisis. And I apologise for sounding very gloomy on an already very wet and windy Tuesday evening. Um, thank you very much for listening. Um, I hope you enjoy the session this evening and I'm now going to hand you over to Maeve who's going to talk to you a little bit about why and how we came up with this idea for a series of seminars and webinars. Thank you. Thank you very much Melissa. Um, good evening everyone and uh, as Melissa said thank you very much for joining us um, for this webinar series the 99 presenters. My name is Maeve Lucy and as Melissa said, I'm a solicitor in the family and matrimonial team here at Bindman's. Um, Divorce and financial remedy cases make up probably more than half of my workload. Um, and so I'm going to talk to you a little bit more about how we came up with this idea. Um, so the 99 percenters, who are they? What do they need? And uh, finally, the biggest question of all, the one on everyone's lips, how did we get here? So first of all, the idea for the series um, came from a lunch meeting that Melissa and I had with Joe on an even gloomier evening um, towards the end of last year. I had read Joe's book when it was first published and I was really inspired by her approach to family law matters. So I wrote to her to connect with her and um, congratulate her on the book because um, I found out what she was doing to be really refreshing. Um, Joe is a beacon of light in a sea of contentious correspondence and court proceedings. And I think that all family law practitioners should read her book. Um, if you would like to know where to get a copy, please do get in touch and I'd be happy to send you a link. Um, together with Only Mums and Dads, an organisation that I'm sure you're all familiar with, um, she's really created such a special and insightful book. Um, and it just kind of takes us all back to basics in terms of how we communicate on a human level with um, not just with our clients, but with our contemporaries and our peers in the legal world. Um, following the Language Matters report, and given the fact that I'm assuming most of the attendees here are members of Resolution, 
Um, it can be quite disheartening when you receive that cranky letter. So I think Joe and Only Mums and Dads are making real strides to um, show us all and all of our colleagues that there's another way. And we will be touching in more detail on the Language Matters report at a later session in the series. Um, so back to the fate, that fateful lunch. Um, at the time, we were completing our directory submissions for Chambers and Partners. And we started to discuss the concept of high net worth individuals with Joe. Um, I'm sure all of you will be familiar with the Chambers and Partners category. Um, the, the high net worth family and matrimonial category, which um, involves cases above 10 million pounds. So we were discussing that and we were kind of thinking, you know, who are these high net worth individuals? How many clients do you have that have more than 10 million pounds worth of assets? Um, so in our research for this series, um, we looked at figures from the Office of National Statistics, which shows that which show that the richest one percent of households in the UK have 3.6 million pounds of assets. Um, and so not only um, do these or not only are the number of high net worth individuals uh, not that high, but the actually the richest 1% of households uh, in the UK don't even qualify for that high net worth category according to HMRC. So only 263,000 households in the UK have assets of 3.6 million pounds or more, um, and that makes up 1%. Um, and our clients are generally in that other 99%. Um, so the bottom line is that most of us are dealing with the 99 percenters. And whilst high net worth cases are undoubtedly complex for various reasons, um, high net worth individuals themselves, in fact, only make up a very tiny percentage of the population. So where does that leave the 99 percenters, the real net worth individuals? Are their cases less complex? We would possibly say that no, they're not, because in fact, in cases where there's less money to divide, um, it's often much more difficult for everyone involved. Um, and that includes us, the lawyers and um, the barristers like Nastasia and of course, the families. So um, our clients are often robbing Peter to pay Paul when it comes to legal fees. Um, and I'm sure that most of you would agree that when you're faced with a client where it's clear there's not enough or just about enough money to go around, you're, fi you're facing a huge, or you find yourself facing a huge challenge um, because you ultimately are trying to get your client what they need without depleting the assets they will need to move on with their future. Um, and when you come into those kinds of situations, um, you'll find that the, the other party's position can become entrenched um, as well as your own clients. And people can become quite defensive um, because they're scared, they're anxious, and they're worried about you know, spending what, what's there on legal fees. And that perhaps makes them unable to listen to your advice and take it on board. Um, on top of that, um, even high net worth individuals will struggle um, to part with their hard earned cash um, and spend it on lawyers. So for the 99 percenters, that is naturally going to be even more difficult. Um, and you're in a situation where you're trying to ensure there are there's going to be sufficient funds for everyone to restart their lives. Um, and also while only acting for one of the parties in that family. Um, and we just, as lawyers really, I think, need to start considering what our impact um, is on those families and what, our, what impact our involvement has on not just our own clients, but their, their, their partner or former partner and the children of the family. Um, the challenge that our clients are facing are getting even tougher, as Melissa raised earlier on. Um, the cost of living crisis, spiraling mortgage interest rates, inflation, the cost of childcare and issues around pensions, just to mention some of the issues um, that are ongoing. 
um, are really affecting these clients, the 99 percenters. Um, more than 1.4 million households are going to be renewing their fixed rate mortgages in 2023. And those rates have jumped from about 2% when the initial rates were fixed to the current Bank of England rate, which stands at 4%. Um, and has therefore increased the standard mortgage rate to 7.49%. Um, so people are really feeling the impact. Um, inflation has reached, um, it, it had reached a 41 year high in October of 2022 and is currently standing at 10.4%. So these factors are really influencing <clears throat> what our clients have available to them to spend and also what our advice needs to be. Um, times are extremely difficult for these 99 presenters. Um, I'm going to pass back to Melissa now to um, address some of the some more statistics in relation to these issues. Thank you, Maeve. Um, uh, and as well as all these kind of economic challenges and everything that we've been talking about, we've also got the uh, added pressures of court chaos, waiting times that are being increased, cancellation of hearings, um, judicial unavailability, and I'm sure that everybody has come across that kind of recently with uh, hearings being pulled out last minute or rescheduled for earlier dates that you just can't can't meet, um, and overstretched resources. Um, Clients are undoubtedly concerned about money, purse strings are really tightening, um, and I just think the fear of escalating legal fees uh, is potentially putting people off from taking legal advice when they need it most. We also, as practitioners, have to balance these challenges against our own practical challenges of maintaining busy caseloads, you know, perhaps meeting targets, uh, making fees, um, and it's a real hard balance to strike, and I think that's, uh, you know, why this type of work is, is really difficult for us um, and uh, you know it was the inspiration behind kind of running this se seminar and webinar series as we've already mentioned. Um, I've now got a few court statistics for you and I apologise I'm, I'm doing the slides at the same time so I think I may have jumped in earlier than I should when Maeve was talking so I am really sorry about that. Um, I have got some court statistics for you, which I've taken from the Family Court Statistics Quarterly Report for April to June 2022. So they're slightly out of date. I couldn't get my hands on the uh, up to date report. I don't think it's been published yet. I hope it may have been now. Um, but I'll just run through a couple of these uh, statistics with you, uh, which I think are quite interesting. So <clears throat> family proceedings in courts um, are up 2% on the previous year, although there has been a decrease in financial remedy proceedings. Um, between April and June 2022, um, under the new no-fault divorce rules, there were 33,234 applications. Those applications made under the new law, 78% um, of those were from sole applicants and 22% were joint applicants. Um, the total amount of applications under the new and old divorce um, scheme was 33,566, which is an increase of 22% on the previous year. And rather interestingly, it's the highest number of applications in a decade. Um, digital divorce cases make up 90% of the total cases, which is an increase of 72% from the previous year. Um, the number of financial remedy applications, as I've mentioned, that, that's actually decreased and was down 31% um, from the previous year. And a number of, the number of disposal was actually down, cases that went to disposal was down 26% compared to the year before. Um, the number of private law children's cases decreased by 7% and the number of applications made also decreased over the same period of time and the number of disposals in private law children cases um, were also down uh, by 16 percent. So talking again about divorce, um, the average time from petition to decree nisice, presumably under the old um, rules, was 36 weeks which was up 12 weeks from the previous year and the average time from petition to decree absolute, again I think this was pre-no-fault divorce, um, was 56 weeks and that was up seven weeks from the previous year um, and I think these increases have been impacted by resourcing issues but it's not clear how much they've impacted them and how much it's um, kind of been impacted by other issues such as kind of difficulties with uh, financial uh, negotiations. Um, 
The average time for divorce and annulment cases to reach first disposal was up 11 weeks from the previous year, and this is the highest uh, time for divorce cases to reach first disposal since records were being kept. Um, private law cases, the average time to uh, first disposal was 30 weeks, which was an increase of four weeks from the previous year. Um, and the proportions of disposals were neither the applicant or the respondent had legal representation was actually 39%, which is an increase um, from the previous year as well. So with all these challenges and kind of the changing market and pressure and everything coming from all angles um, facing the clients and us as practitioners, I guess we, we want to know what we can do to help them and to help each other. And I'm now going to pass that over to Joe to answer that very, very difficult question. Hello and uh, welcome to everybody. Thank you very much for Maeve and uh, Melissa's uh, grueling statistics there. My goodness, uh, lots of research gone into that. Um, yeah, well, I, I'll start with the court, shall I? I mean, it, you know, it, it, it was a, you know, a dog's dinner uh, before COVID. And now, of course, it, I've got more expletives for it. But uh, essentially, you all know how terrible it is. I was speaking to a solicitor today and she said, it's been more than three years and we don't have a judgment yet. So um, this, is, uh, this is commonplace. So really all of us need to be thinking about how we could do things differently. I suppose from a, from, a, from a commercial viewpoint, one might say, um, oh, that's my book. There's a, li a list there if you want to buy it. Um, if, um, from a commercial point of view, you might think, well, that's okay. I've got, I've issued my case or the other person's issued the case. Um, we'll trundle along till we get to talking about finances, we'll get to a hearing, um, we'll update everything for the hearing. We, we abide by the court um, uh, necessities of creating the documents we need to create. And then lo and behold, a day or two beforehand, there's no judge. Um, essentially you're you're out uh, there's nothing you can do about it you have no power and uh, what happens then so i suppose i would i suppose i'd be mind i'd be saying to you if possible perhaps get everyone together on a zoom who was going to be at the hearing and see if you can sort out your own directions can you do that can you write into the court can you get rid of that for perhaps the first hearing if you were going to do a financial dispute resolution hearing or maybe you could call um, Nastasia, for example, and say that, are you free to do a private FDR for us? Everything is ready. Um, when can you do it? And, and literally, although it does cost some money to do that, you will be being paid for the time that you, that, that you do all of that work. But, but moreover, you have some certainty. But we will be in the next uh, couple of sessions talking more detail about how, what, they, what those mean and when you could use them. And I suppose, um, I mean, we, we may be becoming a slightly rare species. Um, it's a bit sobering to think that uh, lawyer-based services uh, in real life are in sharp decline. Um, so when I started 20 years ago, 80% um, of clients had, would see a solicitor. Everyone, almost everyone would see a solicitor. And that's partly due to legal aid. But also there was a different feeling about experts. People felt the need to consult them. And we've lost the high ground a little bit, I think. And, and, and should we worry about that? I mean, I think, yes, we should. Um, there are online providers with their so-called quickie divorces, the quick fixes. And, and we might scoff at them a little bit um, because they don't have insurance and who knows what they're doing. But they are offering something perhaps that, th that we're not, perhaps a fixed fee, a predictable offering. So there's lots going on uh, out there and, and, and really we need to be mindful of that. And I also think if we, if we keep offering what we've been offering, I wonder in this current context, is that ethical? Um, the president of the Family Law Division today um, was talking about, uh, issued a press release talking about how we need to be thinking about the ethics of our work. Is it ethical to issue a case when we know it's not gonna have any resolution for Come up, coming up to three years, when we know that it's going to cost a small fortune to run that case that clients perhaps can't afford, especially in the current environment. And why would they? Why would they sign up to that? 
So we've got a heavy obligation on us. So it's, I don't think in the future it will be just about NDAs and Nastasia is going to talk a bit more, more about our obligations later. But I do think time's coming when people will be looking at us and saying, well, why did you run that case like that? Did you have an alternative? Now, of course, Melissa will come, perhaps I may will come in later. Well, I'm not talking about domestic abuse. I'm not talking about when someone's dissipating assets and you have to make urgent applications because it's grave and it's really important. I'm not saying that. I'm saying most of the other cases, at least 60% of the cases, could be dealt with differently. So what gives me some hope? Well, what gives me some hope is that we just heard that 22% of divorce applications are being made together. So people are making a joint application. Interestingly, I don't tell my clients to make a joint application because, well, it's a bit of a pain. They have to do everything together. Um, so hopefully they'll change that a little bit so it will become a bit easier uh, so for bo bo both of them perhaps to, to jointly apply and then just one to continue things all the way. My, my main worry about the online uh, portal is that people now think they don't need, actually need to get any advice. So how many of those people are missing out? And that might be linked to the, um, the fall in applications that have been made. Uh, because people really don't have any idea about what their rights and responsibilities are. So where, 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 what can we do um, a little bit differently? So again, I said, you know, I, I mentioned that we, we need to think about um, uh, doing things differently and, and perhaps not being such a lawyer. Um, so in, in page 55 of my book, I was a little bit, so I got into the research for the book. I, I looked at what, what, what does listeners do? So we give uh, expert advice on everyday issues including relationship breakdowns. It goes on with protect individuals' rights. Um, and we divide the sort of solicitors divided into contentious legal work, or that's a court or tribunal, or non-contentious work, like for example, conveyancing or making a will. So what else do we do? Um, we represent clients in court, we liaise with other professionals such as barristers, we draft letters, research cases and legislation. Doesn't say anything there, does it, about being peacemaking, about trying to see the bigger picture. Um, but I do think there's an obligation on us to do that. So um, let me give you a little example about advice that one couple might hear from solicitor one and solicitor two. So solicitor one says, oh yes, this is a clear 50-50 division of the family home, says the solicitor or a lawyer working for the husband who wants his share of the house now move over to the other office or Zoom meeting. Oh, you're definitely entitled to 70 to 80% of the family home, says the lawyer working for the wife who has primary care of the children. So they're probably both right, aren't they? I mean, in some ways, um, we can probably agree that there's, a, there's something in what they're saying. And those solicitors are not doing anything wrong. They're not, they're doing their job. As outlined, this is what you do. But I'm wondering if, a better way to approach that would be to say, well, we've got to prioritise the housing needs of the children. And how can we do that? You know, at the moment you come to see me, I've got loads of questions that I'm not, I don't have all the answers to at the moment. So could you both live in owner-occupied occupation? Well, that would be great if you can. If we, if we can make it so that both of you can, that would be great because the children won't have to move so often. So if we know that children who live in rented accommodation move at least nine times more than parents who own their own home. So yes, that's an ideal, but it might not be possible. There might not be enough money to do that. Can we keep the family home for the duration of the, ch of the children's minority? Can it be afforded? How can we do it? Can we release any money to the other person? So these are sorts of questions that need answering. And it's more inquisitive, isn't it? It's much more curious about rather than saying yes you will definitely get this or that it's more okay how can we make this work but I suppose my feeling is that when clients come to see us they really they don't know the full picture they don't know the answers they're just really worried super stressed scared they simply want our reassurance that everything will be okay uh, and when we find out a little bit about the assets we'll know whether they will or not but essentially um, that's what they want from us and I, I would recommend using um, some of the uh, uh, technology out there that will help you win your first meeting. So I use Engage, 
um, run by Family Law Lab. I wish I'd done it when it first came out. I was very slow to engage and engage, but essentially what arrives with me is the client has completed a full picture of their finances. I know pretty much everything about it. It's, if it's a trust of land act case, I know some of the questions that you must answer, you'll ask your, your client and they've given honest answers. They have no idea why they're being asked those things, but it really helps me understand what their case is all about. So my first meeting then with them is just getting to know them, you know, what's important to them. Um, just jumping back a little bit about the, the information I've got, it might become clear to me that I need to start talking early on about a, a POE, a pensions on divorce expert, or an IFA, you know, can you go and see a neutral IFA? Do you need to see an IFA about an independent financial advisor about, about things? I mean, if it's clear that your client has absolutely no idea about budgets or finances, maybe a financial coach and or a, a financial, uh, an IFA needs to work with them. And let's face it, quite often our clients are in such a state that really they shouldn't be doing any of this at all. They should be stopping and working with a financial a family consultant or a therapist or a counsellor just to calm down before they start doing this work. I mean, we're asking people to make these massive decisions at such a terrible time in their lives. But anyway, the other thing I, I would recommend to you is I, I, I work with um, uh, our family in two homes, which I've anglicised. These are around the world, but they tell us that that will tell us, you know, uh, give them some insight into what's important to them, what their values are, how they make decisions. Um, do they need to take some time? Do they trust the other person? There's absolutely loads in there. It's just front loading this process. They can do the workbook on their own. They can get some insight into their situation. Also the workbook just sets out everything that they're gonna have to think about uh, during this whole process, including parenting plans and finances. Um, they'll also have told me everything about their finances so that when we get together, I'm just, well, what's really important to you? I can build my rapport with them and they will trust me. And then when they trust me, I can start talking about ways they can move forward, ways that won't involve me writing a letter, explaining to the other person why, might, why they should get 50, 60, 70 or 80% of the house. So uh, we'll be talking in other sessions about what those processes might be, but essentially, it's our, it's my job to say, look, I think with your budget and with what's going on between the two of you, this is the course of action I think you should take, whatever that is. It's going to be bespoke, isn't it? Because every single client, every single family is different. But overall, my message is um, let's not put them on an oppositional trajectory from the get go. The true cost of that is like loads of legal fees that go up exponentially and unpredictably. We've got our ethical code I think we're going to have to start thinking about and don't forget the emotional cost to them their children and I think to you as practitioners thank you for your listening <laughs> um, I'm going to hand over now to Maeve thank you thank you very much Jill. that's uh, a lot of food for thought and it um, kind of nicely takes us on to the next uh, part of the webinar, which is essentially just um, to look at some polls. Um, so these, um, the answers to these polls are going to inform some of the discussions that we have in the next webinar and then the subsequent seminar that we're having in person in June. Um, so if everybody can um, stand to attention, uh, some polls are about to just pop up on your screen if I can work them. Okay. Um, so the first poll um, deals with uh, whether you use, <clears throat> whether and what methods you use to try and avoid con contested court proceedings. Um, so I think this is multiple choice. So feel free to tick as many boxes as um, methods of ADR that you've used essentially. Okay, so the answers to that are 91% um, of use mediation, which is very significant. Um, almost 40% mediation with lawyers, the same for arbitration, 67% private FDRs, 
collaborative practice is low at 18%, but Joe um, is going to speak to us a bit more about that at the next webinar, and I think it, it's obviously going to increase thereafter. 61% have used roundtable meetings, and other is 12%. Um, I'd like to know what other is, and um, maybe you can put that in the chat. Uh, interesting, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's a really kind of interesting mix. It's it's quite a kind of good balance of uh, different um, resolution methods that people are using, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Uh, this is a, a slightly more straightforward one. Um, so this one relates to transparency around legal fees, which I think Nastasia is going to address a bit later on. Uh, right, uh, so that's a fairly definitive 100% um, of people have said more transparency around legal fees would be beneficial for separating couples. Um, this um, is an interesting one, actually, I think. Um, so are your hourly rates available on your firm's website? Okay, so that one is... An 82% no, even though 100% of people said more transparency would be beneficial for clients. So I think this is interesting. It's kind of, uh, you know, why, why um, are we not sharing this information if we think it would be so beneficial? Um, does your firm offer any fixed fees for family work excluding mediation? Hmm, a bit of a mix with that one. Um, I'm I'm going to be curious to hear um, what uh, firms are offering fixed fees for, what specific areas. Does the recent progression towards greater transparency in the family courts make you think differently about how you practice? I think this is probably one that most of us have on our minds. So 70, around 70% um, say yes, and then the remainder say no. Okay, so the next one is, have you had any financial remedy cases in the last 12 months with assets more than £3.6 million? Okay, this is actually interesting as well. Um, about 57% said yes, so that means there are lots of lawyers act, um, acting for the high net worth types um what about more than 10 million pounds um and that is kind of like the opposite of the previous results so the very very high net worth individuals um most people are not acting for those okay and then the next poll has to do with the court delays has the state of the court changed the way you practice looks like it's changed um things for quite a lot of practitioners Poll nine is um, one of the tips from Joe's book. Um, do you try to telephone rather than write to the solicitor acting for the other person on a case? I think this, I think sometimes is the clear, the clear winner there. So again, um, I hope we're going to find out a bit more about um, people's answers at the next session. And so the final one is... Um, how, how constructive has that telephone call or have you found that to be? Okay, so only 4% say no, <laughs> only one answer. So I think um, that would suggest, wouldn't it, that telephone calls are fairly constructive. Um, so I'm going to move on now. I've just had Nastasia clarify that she's not going to be talking about <laughs> transparency around legal fees, but she is going to be talking about costs more generally. Um, so I think um, I'm going to hand over to Nastasia now. Thank you for taking part in the polls. Thank you, Maeve. Hopefully you can all see me in there. Thank you very much. There's my PowerPoint. So good evening. Um, and of course, I'm talking about, in line with what's already been clearly said, uh, what do real net worth clients need? And starting with looking at some good to know law and recent cases, the context uh, for what I'm going to be talking to you about is those cases where, for a variety of reasons, going to court hasn't been able to be avoided either because there are cases where there has been no option because of the nature of the financial assets, complexity and the like have had to get to court, or because parties have either unreasonably or because of a lack of awareness 
gone straight to court as opposed to looking at other options. And so I'm going to be talking to you today about uh, some of the mechanisms that the court is trying to employ either to encourage parties not to treat court as the first option, but to treat it as the last resort, uh, or once they already are in court, uh, to impose certain sanctions upon them to try and, again, I suppose, encourage us all to think more differently in terms of our approach. Uh, I'll look at three particular areas, and the first is on my next slide, looking at judicial encouragement for parties to enter uh, alternative dispute resolution. And I'll take you through two cases briefly, uh, which look at the proactive judicial encouragement once parties are in court for them to think of another way and engage with another way rather than persisting with the court process. Uh, secondly, I'll look at, as I've mentioned, court-based sanctions. Uh, the Next option to look at is the approach of the Ministry of Justice and what in terms of joined up thinking they are proposing to try and uh, dissuade parties from going straight to court. And the final uh, matter I'll talk to you about are a couple of tips in respect of procedure. So looking then at this first slide, uh, the case of Mr Justice Mostyn, it's quite an old case in fact, but it set a theme or uh, more clearly highlighted a theme, it's from 2014, and the context of the case was that uh, the husband had argued that the wife ought to be debarred from pursuing her enforcement application in financial remedy proceedings, and that instead she ought to be held to a previous agreement that the parties had made to mediate. And as you see in the second bullet point, the wife disputed that and said, that the court couldn't force or coerce her to mediate. And so the question for Mr Justice Mostyn was to what extent the court could in fact uh, force or coerce parties to mediate in any circumstances, whether there had been an agreement or not. Uh, the court considered civil law uh, and our uh, family procedure rules. And over on the next slide, I set out uh, some bullet points as to really important points of practice from Mr Justice Mostyn's judgment. He held that in that case, the parties would be bound by their agreement to mediate. However, it couldn't be given effect so as to prevent the wife from pursuing her enforcement application until and unless mediation had taken place. But the court did, and you see the court couldn't impose a mandatory order to participate in ADR, but over the, uh, in the next slide, you will see that what the court could do is adjourn the wife's applications for a specified period to enable the parties to engage in ADR. And as per the quote, Mr Justice Mostyn said that the court can robustly encourage and coerce participation in ADR specifically by making clear that cost sanctions might await parties who unreasonably refuse to do so. And in that case, uh, Mr Justice Mostyn, as per the second bullet point, said that parties should be prepared to justify any decision at the conclusion of proceedings if they determined that the case was unsuitable for ADR and again there would be at risk of cost sanctions if the court disagreed. The bringing matters more up to date over on the next slide uh, is the case of WL and HL, a case from 2021 of Mr. Recorder Allen Casey. And this case uh, is particularly helpful because again, it follows the theme of the case adjourning financial remedy proceedings for the parties to engage in mediation in this case. But importantly, and certainly a point of practice for us, is that he, pro he so proactively um, managed this adjournment that, as you see from the second, second bullet point, he required the parties to provide fortnightly updates and slash progress reports about how they were uh, getting on in terms of mediation, excluding the detail, of course, but certainly such was the requirement that he placed on the parties that it meant that the drift that can sometimes happen or perhaps often happen 
uh, as we now see when cases are adjourned, wasn't allowed to happen in this case. And the result was that at the end, the judge only had to resolve a discrete issue on paper. And as you see, uh, he, and it seems the parties seem to agree that as a result of the way that he proactively managed the case uh, and really kept the pressure on, for want of a better phrase, in terms of the parties engaging with mediation, one, the process was quicker and less expensive for the parties, and two, the process, notwithstanding that this was a matter that was before the court, was nonetheless less adversarial and polarising. And just pausing there and, and bringing it back to the theme, given the economic challenges that we know our real net worth clients uh, at a particular end of that spectrum are no doubt abundantly aware of, it is therefore important for us as, as advocates and, and as solicitors advising clients to be aware of the fact that the court itself is similarly aware and trying to assist parties to uh, not use their precious funds on legal proceedings and legal fees, but actually to find another way. And not only can this assist in that important first meeting as Joe was talking about in respect of advice that we will give to our own clients, but it may also assist in that phone call that you may have with the other side to try and bring about just a more reasonable approach overall to the litigation uh, in a particular case. The next slide, uh, thank you, deals with the next element uh, that I said in respect of court-based sanctions, if parties have either not um, negotiated sensibly or reasonably or have refused unreasonably to engage in ADR, uh, I refer you to the case of OG and AG from 2020, and the quote uh, from Mr Justice Mostyn again in that case, that it's important that I enunciate this principle loud and clear. If once the financial landscape is clear, you do not openly negotiate reasonably, then you will likely suffer a penalty in costs. This applies whether the case is big or small and whether it is being decided by reference to needs or sharing. And I have highlighted that to you because of course, there can be uh, a reluctance for understandable reasons uh, for either applying for costs orders in cases where they are smaller uh, by contrast to other cases or where they are needs cases. But Mr. Justice Mostyn is saying that the court won't find itself uh, restricted in those ways if, a party has failed to negotiate openly and reasonably. And following that theme over on the next slide is the case of LM and DM costs ruling from 2021, where, as I alluded to previously, in this case, uh, despite the wife succeeding in her application, Nonetheless, a costs order was made against her for failing to negotiate openly and reasonably. And I said there, uh, the second bullet point, that this may be more of a, a hint to us all about a change in the judicial approach, which is perhaps particularly timely, given uh, the sobering statistics that Melissa and Maeve set out earlier on, that there does need to be a different approach because the court system is overwhelmed, as we all know. Uh, there's not just the financial cost to the parties to consider, but also the emotional cost and the significant delay. And taking another step back, of course, when we look at those cases that, for whatever reason, cannot avoid court proceedings, it must be of benefit to those cases if cases that can legitimately be resolved away from the court process are removed from the system, and then we hope that they leave the way clearer for those cases that have to proceed through the court to at least be resolved more quickly because the system is less clogged up. Clearly, uh, this is all going to take time, but what it does tell us is that not only are we as practitioners doing our bit, for want of a better phrase, the court is clearly uh, acutely aware and trying to do its bit in some respects, to uh, assist parties to move away from the cause, unless of course it can't be avoided. The second uh, point that I raised earlier is looking at the approach of the Ministry of Justice 
And it's timely because just last week, the Ministry of Justice issued a consultation on resolving private family disputes earlier through family mediation, uh, with the exception of course of domestic abuse and child protection concerns, but importantly through compulsory mediation, and that is a consultation uh, that is currently underway. This follows off the back of the 69% success rate of the mediation voucher scheme and the fact that 13,500 families seem to have had some measures of success uh, in accessing the scheme. And over the page, and perhaps importantly for us as uh, financial remedy proceedings, are the four key aims of the current government consultation. I won't look at all of them, I'll let you read them at your leisure, but importantly, uh, point two, imposing cost consequences for the failure to try mediation uh, is something that is specifically being consulted about. And three, extending funding so that the temporary uh, mediation voucher scheme that provides couples with a contribution towards mediation costs becomes permanent and could extend to cover financial disputes uh, as well as disputes involving children. So there is clearly uh, a move in the direction of looking at things a different way, as Joe said earlier, and not only are the courts getting on board with that, but the Ministry of Justice are clearly also taking it very seriously. Uh, finally, from me, uh, moving on to the final, third and final point uh, that I referred to is looking in two respects, one about variation applications, and it's just a point of procedure to draw to your attention. Of course, uh, in challenging financial times, there's an uptick, certainly um, anecdotally in variation applications for understandable reasons. And by way of this slide, uh, I just draw to your attention that the Form E2, of course, is the application to vary a financial order. But since the 16th of January this year, where the variation application is to capitalise an order for periodical payments, Form E must be used. And I say that uh, just to point out the slight change to procedure, which happened recently. And the final uh, slide uh, is in relation to the imminent change that is happening in regards capital gains tax by way of the uh, implementation of the finance number two bill 2023 which provides that where a relevant disposal happens on or after the 6th of April 2023, so as I say, the change is fast approaching, there will be changes to the capital gains tax rules to make the rules fairer for separating couples, uh, separating spouses and civil partners, and to allow more time to transfer assets between themselves without incurring a charge in respect of CGT. And what that means in practice is that parties will be given up to three years after the year that they cease living together to make uh, no gain, no loss transactions. And that may well be significant, particularly given the straightened financial times that we're in given that we're looking at real net worth clients where every penny is likely to count. Uh, and again, it's something uh, that in a tricky time may actually provide some uh, or release some of the pressure that may otherwise be on the parties financially at such a difficult time. Thank you uh, very much for listening. I know that there'll be some time for questions and answers. Thank you very much, Nastasia. That was excellent. <clears throat> and I really enjoyed that we ended on a, a, a relatively positive point about getting some uh, time on that CGT <laughs> issue, which was really nice. Thank you very much for that. Um, we have a couple of, or maybe only just one question at the moment. Um, and please do feel free to pop some more in the Q&A section at the bottom of your screens. The first question is from Bridget. Um, she says, what, if any, is the weight given to certification of a mediator following a MIAM that the case is unsuitable for mediation? Um, I don't know if, if anybody wanted to answer that, Nastasia. I don't know if you've got a view on that. Um, I think it varies. Uh, but anecdotally, I think the problem is that perhaps, and, and others may disagree, but perhaps it's taken uh, at face value. Of course, it's right that mediators um, are doing their best and they are, um, you know, 
trying their best in very difficult situation with often not very much time to assess the complexities before them. Uh, but I guess often it's not interrogated very much in court at all. And that is probably why sometimes um, the certification becomes somewhat performative in terms of clients knowing it's a hoop that they need to jump through in order to just get to court, which is where they think all of their problems are going to be solved. And then, of course, we come in and, and give them the reality check that they often find, understandably, very difficult to take on board. But that's just um, my experience of it. Others may have a different view. Thank you. Joe. did you want to add anything to that? No, I agree with that, Nastasia, entirely. Um, and certainly, I mean, if you remember the early days of the Mayams, no one was really looking at them at all. And, and, and I think sometimes some solicitors um, just tick a box that they've tried other t methods uh, to resolve things, which for them, I don't know what that means. Um, sending an email or a letter or something, that didn't work. Uh, um, perhaps that's enough for them. Um, certainly, I think that needs to be uh, strengthened and it, and, it, and, it, and it might well be. And, and I think actually, if, um, Bridget, if you've got some thoughts on that, perhaps you could um, take part in the consultation. There aren't that many questions. All of you take part in the consultation because it's actually not that there aren't that many questions to answer. Because like most of these really quick, because it's only two months, the closing date is in June. So there's only a couple of months to, uh, a few months to, to look at this. And as usual, they kind of tailor the questions. So they kind of get the answers that they kind of really want or perhaps <laughs> I don't know um but I mean I mean I, I don't know what anybody else thinks but we should have another poll I mean I for one actually as a mediator would welcome mandatory mediation there you are I would um <laughs> that that's quite um um communication mediation communities quite precious uh sorry but I think it is a little bit um very lots of rules and but I think actually we've got to have to say actually this isn't working for what we're doing because I, I, I mean I'll, we've only got two minutes left, but long ago we did a free scheme at court uh, mediation, all children uh, at cases, private, private or children cases, and literally 85% uh, of those cases were resolved with the use of a mediator at court. I tell you why, because they were making the wrong application at the wrong time about the wrong thing, um, and they just needed someone to just like bang their heads together, really. Literally, that's, and that's why this voucher scheme has been so, so valuable. Yeah. Yeah, no, thank you very much, Joe. Um, we don't have any questions um, left, I don't think. So unless anybody wants to type furiously, I will say thank you again to um, everyone for attending. Thank you very much to Nastasia, uh, Maeve and Joe. You've been excellent. It's been really brilliant to collaborate with everyone on this. Um, oh, you. someone has raised a hand. <laughs> hand raised. <laughs> Nick of time. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure. Oh, one more question. Oh, no, it's just a thank you. Thank you very much for that. <laughs> um, brilliant. I will um, will say good night. Enjoy the rest of your evenings, everybody. Thank you. Good evening.